Well, good morning, Greenwich, and welcome to the Wednesday, December 14th edition of the Basement Academy. Our morning psalm is uh, a little longish. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, picks a phrase from this psalm and pulls it into that wonderful passage in Romans 8 about nothing separating us uh, from the love of God. And, and it's this, um, this phrase, yet for your sake we face death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And so let's read that verse in the context of the whole psalm. Psalm 44. This is for the director of music. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what you did in their days and days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God, who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You have given us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The peoples shake their heads at us. My disgrace is before me all day long, and my face is covered with shame. The taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this happened to us, though we had not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals and covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it, since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. Mm. Psalm 44. It's a toughie. <clears throat> Starts out great, you know, God's arm, his hand, his face, delivering the people, all this recalling the, the good deliverance of God, and then the reality of struggle and conflict and being set upon by enemies. This is Israel's story. And in many ways, it's all our story, right? It's everyone's story. And so Paul picks up on this theme as Christians, 
the persecuted church finding themselves at odds with the world. And so we look to God to be our Savior and Deliverer. Okay, let us try to recover Advent again. All right. Now think about the way our culture practices Christmas, what I call cultural Christmas. And I would argue that cultural Christmas kind of sugarcoats the world. It, it sprinkles little dust and, you know, it's got little sprinkles on everything and everything's just sweet and light and holly and jolly. And um, cultural Christmas makes sure it avoids controversy. So we don't even talk about Christmas anymore, right? It's the holidays because we don't want to offend any other religious tradition and Christmas is distinctively Christian. And so the way cu the culture, American culture, and perhaps others as well, but American culture practices this season is let's not offend, let's avoid controversy, happy holidays uh, to everyone. And I'm not trying to fight the Merry Christmas, happy holidays. You know, I don't want to fight that battle right now. I'm just trying to make observations. Um, Cultural Christmas sells good cheer, happiness, fun-filled moments. You know, the, 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 the light, airy tunes that are in the back of the advertisers, the jingling, the smiling children, the happiness, all of this stuff. But of course, cultural Christmas is selling us something, right? It's, it's leveraging, it's trading off of that human desire for things to be well. What, what we, we might call shalom, right, in the biblical context. We do want all to be merry and bright. We do want families to gather with smiles on their faces. We do want to have our needs met, and we'd love to have some of our wants met as well. We want the children to be joyful and happy and thankful and grateful to grandma and grandpa and mom and dad. We want the picture of cultural Christmas, that we all want that. And so the, the, the culture, the advertisers, the manufacturers, they've learned to leverage that thing. And so cultural Christmas... Um, kind of cultivates a sense of nostalgia, longing for the past, simpler days, um, kind of the schmaltzy Hallmark movies. If you've watched any of those, you've watched all of them, right? If you've seen one of them, you've really seen them all in, in some ways. Um, cultural Christmas has no room at the inn for bad news. There's no room at the inn for bad news in cultural Christmas, which of course sets us up for tension as we then walk through this season. And the season seems to extend longer and longer. It begins earlier. It doesn't, doesn't end later. It just begins earlier. Um, there's tension because obviously there's plenty of bad news to go around, right? And so, again, cultural Christmas is sugarcoating all of that bad news. Let's just set that aside. Let's let there be peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And I'm not against all of that, okay? But, but a cultural Christmas does us a disservice, I think, in a couple ways. Um, 
it, it avoids the hard stuff. Um, it creates this illusion of walking in a winter wonderland, you know, kind of everything being happy, which then, and so there's this powerful narrative that, that kind of emerges and prevails during this time. And we don't talk, we're not kind of allowed to talk about all that stuff, the, the struggles, the tension in our world, in our lives, etc. And so again, cultural Christmas, okay, cultural Christmas. Now, into all that or against all that, we set this season of Advent, this four-week season leading up to uh, Christmas, uh, uh, the 24th and 25th, Christmas Eve into Christmas Day. And so Advent is this four-week season that insists that we face the hard stuff. Advent um, invites us to reckon with the world as it is, an honest reckoning. Things are not right. Things are not right out there in the world, in the affairs of men and nations, but things are not right in here, in my little world, right? And so Advent invites us to an honest assessment, an honest reckoning of these things. There is injustice, there is suffering, there are wars, there is hatred, death continues to uh, prevail. There is a systemic brokenness to the world. Advent invites that. Speaking yesterday about this wide sweep of history stretching all the way back to the garden. We live east of Eden. And so Advent keeps that in view. And it says, yep, <laughs> though we may desire things to be well, things are not well. It's the bad news. Advent keeps in view the bad news, which sets the context for the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ, the good news for his uh, redemption. Advent then, by looking forward, keeps in view that God is going to make things right. So there's an honest reckoning that Advent invites and it looks to God to set things right, not to a toy, a new car, uh, some new appliance, uh, some fine wine or travel experiences, whatever cultural Christmas is trying to sell us to put the Band-Aid on that ache in our hearts and our lives you know, if we just get the kids the right toys, then they'll be happy. No, they won't. <laughs> They're kids. They're little sinners, right? And they'll be unsatisfied with that toy soon enough. And so cultural Christmas puts Band-Aids, Advent invites, and Honest Reckoning says only God can set this world aright. And only God has set this world right through Jesus Christ, the one who was to come, did come, and the good news is he will come again to set all things right. And so Advent owns the reality of living east of Eden. And so Advent invites us towards confession. It invites us to acknowledge the inner world that I am not right. Things are not right with me my greed, my lust, my pride, my anger. You know, you go through the seven deadlies. We've done that before. Pew, slag, pride, envy, wrath, sloth, lust, avarice, and gluttony. And so you, you 
go through and Advent invites us to acknowledge it's because of sin, my sin and the sin of the world, that God sent his son so that he could grow to be a man who would die as a, the, the, the sacrifice lamb for us. And Advent then invites our witness to the world that God is good and God will set things right. So there's confession and witness, I believe, is what Advent is ultimately about. And so Advent looks forward to God setting all things right. He has begun to do so in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we bear witness to a God who will bring his peaceful and peaceable kingdom finally, fully, and forever. That all things in heaven and on earth will one day ultimately be reconciled uh, to God. This discipline that looks forward to the setting right of all things finally, fully, and forever is called eschatology. Okay, so I've talked about being liturgically correct, right? We're not supposed to sing Christmas carols in Advent. There's supposed to be a restraint. So theologically correct, to be theologically correct, Advent is concerned with eschatology and what we might call the end of the world. Now, that word end does double duty. It can mean the termination, the, 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 final, uh, the, the final buzzer, right? When the, the game is over, so to speak, kind of chronologically. But a better way of thinking about the end of the world is the end is the purpose, the goal. What is, what is the end of the game? The end of the game is to win, right? That's the purpose of the game, the goal of the game. So that word end serves double duty. It's chronology when the whistle blows, tweet, the game is over. But it also speaks to the purpose, the goal of the world. And the end of the world is the reconciling of all things in Jesus Christ. Advent looks to that. And so eschatology considers both of those, the termination of all things. When will you return and set up your kingdom? The disciples asked Jesus. Ah, only the Father knows the hour, okay? So we tend to, people who think about the future and the return of Christ tend to get concerned about the chronology of, all, of that event. You know, wars and rumors of wars and, you know, is this fulfilling prophecy? Possibly. I think eschatology better, a better way to come at eschatology is what is the purpose? What is the goal? All things are moving towards a reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. And so we call people, our witness is to call people into relationship with Christ. Confession is making sure we stay in right relationship. Witness is inviting others into right relationship with Christ. And so, and so this eschatological focus of Advent that looks forward to the return of Christ, his coming again. So he has come as a child in the manger, born of the Virgin Mary. He will come again, but not this time as a, um, uh, as a little baby in the manger. He will come riding a white horse. Uh, the book of Revelation uh, pictures for us one who comes and who has a sword coming out of his mouth. It's a graphic image of the word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword. And so Jesus subdues the world with his word, with his teaching. His teaching of truth, his teaching of God, his teaching of salvation, his teaching of life. 
Uh, this teaching of who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. All of these wonderful statements that we read in scripture. And so he comes to crush the serpent's head finally, fully, and forever. And so the picture of him slaying the dragon and, and throwing that dragon into the, into the abyss and the lake of fire, all of these wonderful images. And so eschatology seems to be the most impractical of, of uh, theological uh, disciplines and doctrines. But I would argue... I heard this first from Eugene Peterson, my favorite author, that eschatology is the most practical and pastoral of all disciplines because it lifts up the victory of God, the victory of Jesus Christ. It says the end is secure. Whenever the game ends, we're on the winning side. Okay, So we can live this life with assurance and confidence and so eschatology, by looking to the end of things chronologically and, and purposefully as we look down into the future, Christians, because of the witness of these scriptures, live with a confidence and a hope. Now, we've read the end of the story, okay? You know, there are people who like to you know, read the end of the book. They will like to watch the end of the movie to know where it goes, and then they go back and watch the thing. Well, we're we kind of know the end of the story. Because of what God has faithfully done in the past, he is faithful to fulfill all of those promises, though it took thousands of years, right? And we're 2,000 years now beyond the birth of Christ, and we may be 2,000 years until the return of Christ. Who knows? But God who was faithful then will be faithful in the future. He'll be faithful now. He'll be faithful in the future. This is Advent. Again, the wide-angle lens on history. God was faithful. We look back. We celebrate his faithfulness. We look forward eschatologically. And so we recognize we're in the middle of the story. We're not at the end of the story yet. We know the end, but we're not there yet. And so when you're in the middle of the story, that's where the plot twists come, right? And so... What I would offer is that we need to cultivate a more eschatological advent, a more eschatological understanding of Christmas. That what happened at Christmas gives us hope that something's going to happen at some point in the future to set it all right. So I live in the middle of the story, in the middle of my story, with this hope and this confidence that God is going to set all things right. And so the birth of Jesus Christ was God coming to us. The life of Jesus Christ taught us a new way to live, a new way to be. The death of Jesus Christ condemned sin that stretches back to the garden. He condemned sin in human flesh and, and Jesus took the punishment in his resurrection there is a vindication of the righteousness uh, of God and the sacrifice of his son in Jesus ascension he is enthroned as Lord seated now at the right hand of the father all authority in heaven and earth now belongs to him he is then poured out his Holy Spirit at Pentecost into the lives of his believers and so and so his so Jesus rules now. He has begun to rule in the church. And so his rule, as we honor him as Lord, as we obey his kingly word, his truth, 
to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love our enemies, we begin to demonstrate the reign and rule of God that will be complete and full at one point in the future. But for now, we are the, 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 the provisional expression of that uh, reign of God. And so when Christ comes again, he will reveal the fullness of God's glory. His glory was veiled in his incarnation. We didn't behold the glory in this little baby sitting in a manger. Where's the glory in that? Uh, we, we, we behold him just humbly walking this earth, um, dust on his feet that needed to be washed, contending with opponents who, who kept trying to trap him and, and, and question him. There was a flash of his glory at the transfiguration as he was transfigured. He, was, he glowed with, as he appeared there with Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John are kind of stumbling and stammering. Wah. And so there was a flash of his glory. And then, and then his death, his humiliation, his arrest, his, his, his suffering, his death, Where's the, well, the glory is in, in the resurrection, right? And so when Christ returns, he will return in glory and the glory of God and he will have the angels surrounding him and then we will be transformed. We will be like him. We shall see him as he is for we shall be like him, John says in his first letter. God's people will be vindicated when he returns. The suffering of the prophets and the apostles and the martyrs and the saints through the years, their faithfulness will be rewarded. You know, the world thinks it's triumphed over Christians, right, and Christianity because Christians are killed and they're put to, uh, in, into the ground. Uh, they're destroyed. And this is what Paul is saying. He picks up on this, for your sake we face death all day long. But nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing in this life, nothing beyond this life. And so there will be a vindication of God's people and in, in, in the saints. The final victory over evil and death will happen. And so the book of Revelation, again, the end of the story, confirms this to, to us. A new heavens and a new earth will be seen and, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or, or mourning or, or sighing or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. We read in Revelation chapter 21. In fact, there will be no more need for the sun for the lamb will be the light. Chapter 22 of Revelation. And so there will be a judgment of the living and the dead and he will separate the sheep from the goats and God's people will move off and enter into the joy of the master, what God has prepared for his people. And he will establish his kingdom finally, fully and forever and that kingdom shall have no end. And as Handel's Messiah sings, he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. <laughs> and of course, Handel's Messiah is just drawn from those passages in Revelation. And so Handel's Messiah is the end of the story. The hallelujah chorus is the end of the story, right? And so we live in the middle of our story. We live today, the struggle, the pain, the sorrow, the grief, the challenge, the struggling against our own sin and our own frustration with ourselves and with the world. We endure that because 
of the end. And so I believe to recover Advent, we need to recover a more eschatological Advent. I, I kind of just wanted to put those two words together. <laughs> a more eschatological Advent. So, Okay, well, let's close here. And then uh, starting tomorrow, I'm going to do something a little different for the next uh, seven days, last two days of this and the five days uh, of next week to do something that ties back to a very old tradition within the church. And I think you're going to like it. So I hope to see you tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy that we have knowing the end of the story already. And we thank you for these scriptures that, that reveal to us a, a final victory upon the return of Jesus Christ. And so strengthen our hearts, encourage our hearts, help us to live this day in the middle of the story with the hope and the confidence and the assurance of what the end of the story tells us. And so we bless you and thank you. Help us to recover Advent as we prepare for Christmas and to give our praise and thanks and honor to you, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May God bless you with a deep abiding faith, hope, and love for one whose kingdom, power, and glory are forever. May he do it this day and forevermore for you and your loved ones. Amen.